Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, welcome to the podcast. I'm Mark Graben. This is episode 383 for August 31st, 2020. Joining me today is Patrick Anderson. He is CEO at an organization called Rural Cap. That's the Rural Alaska Community Action Program, Inc. I've known Patrick for a long time. He was a guest back in episodes 53 and 71. This is going back to 2008, 2009. So you can find those at leanblog.org slash 53 or leanblog.org slash 71. So I'm glad that he's back and you talk about the organization he's been working with leading for um, the past couple of years. We're going to talk about how he first got introduced to lean. He's, he's big into the Dr. Deming philosophy. He's really working at trying to change the culture away from command and control. He's trying to focus on respect for people within the organization. Um, Patrick has a lot of great insights to share, and I'm really happy he's here with us today. Well, again, our guest today is um, Patrick Anderson from uh, Rural Cap. He's the CEO there. Patrick, it's so great to have you uh, back on the podcast again. How are you? Uh, I'm doing just fine, Mark. And uh, since I was on the podcast uh, last, you have adopted video. So it's real nice to see your face as I talk to you. <laughs> it's good to see you and um, a little glimpse into uh, the, the beauty of Alaska. Um but you know, we we you know, lis- listeners now might not have heard the episodes going back uh, eleven or twelve years ago, and, and and people can go revisit those. But you know, if if you don't mind, Patrick, um, you know, if you can introduce yourself um, to the audience, you've got a really interesting background, and and maybe kind of um, weave that into how you got introduced um, to lean and and related concepts. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so I'm actually an attorney and licensed to practice in the state of Alaska since 1978. Uh, I never really liked law practice all that much. I I was decent at it. I made a living. Uh, But uh, as one gets older and begins to see that there are a lot of unmet needs out in in the world, uh, I made a career choice, a a decision to change careers. And it was pretty modest, but uh, I actually ended up being hired by one of our Alaska Native Regional Nonprofit Organizations. And I was working for Chugachmut when you interviewed me the first two times. So I I spent about nine years there. uh, And that was where I got introduced to Lean. Uh, It was in my uh, second year. Uh, The first year that I was there, actually, it was only about uh, four or five months. Uh, initiated a lot of change. I'd had a considerable amount of business experience by that time. Uh, and so we, we started uh, doing improvement events, but it was not structured. It was not formal. Uh, and I got my introduction to Lean uh, because of my involvement with an Alaska Native Regional Corporation, a for-profit uh, corporation, former uh, Fortune 750. It's not a very well-run organization. I tried to bring lean to it. I couldn't find uh, a, an accepting environment. Uh, but it was through my service on the board of one of our subsidiary plastics companies that I met Brian Jones. Uh, and Brian was wonderful. He sat down with our board for a 30-minute lunch in Clinton, Massachusetts, and he explained to us their adoption of lean manufacturing. My question to Brian was, are you planning to extend it to administrative processes? When he said yes, I was off and running. Mm -hmm. I came back to Anchorage. I talked to my executive team. Uh, Interesting response uh, to it. They Almost everyone buys into what the CEO says. It's just sort of uh, programming that you want to survive in your job, you say yes to whatever it is that they uh, propose. Well, I I did that. I went off to the uh, Shingo conference in Lexington, Kentucky in 2004. Uh, Brian was a guest speaker there, but I ran into a couple of uh, lean practitioners and we did engage two of them. The one I really uh, enjoyed was Dr. Tom Jackson. Mm Uh, we, we had him up for six Kaizen, uh, and that started 
my serious learning. Uh, I'm a bookworm anyway, so I, I read considerably. So that was the uh, introduction and, and background that I had. And that, uh, surprisingly enough, was uh, 16 years ago. And in those 16 years, it's been an incredible journey. And, and that plastics company, that, that was Nipro. And Brian, Brian Jones was the CEO of Nipro? Do I- uh, yes, he was the president CEO. Yeah. Uh, interesting story is that they were bought out. Later, they were an uh, employee-owned company. And when a number of long-term employees started uh, uh, retiring, uh, they were entitled to be paid out for their shares. So they ran out of cash. And they sold to a company that had actually adopted lean two years ago and had uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of, of improvement events. Uh, so uh, it's an example of one very aggressive lean company buying out another one that was not quite as aggressive. So um, one thing you and I share in common is exposure to the ideas of Dr. Deming, W. Edwards Deming, before really getting deep into lean. So um, I'm, I'm sure we had explored that in previous episodes, but I was wondering if you could um, you know, share some of your perspectives on, on that. Uh, absolutely. Um, I'm just mesmerized by Dr. Deming. And as I have now 16 years of experience, I understand his frustration uh, at the message he was giving not being accepted in the United States. Uh, but my introduction came, uh, interestingly enough, through my tribal roots uh, in southeast Alaska. My uh, dad and stepmom live in Metlakatla before they passed away. And Larry Rochelo was their um, superintendent of schools. He then went up to the Bureau of Indian Affairs boarding school uh, that my mom went to. It had transitioned into state ownership and adopted a unique method of education that was based on Deming principles. Mm -hmm. So instead of getting grades, instead of being told that they uh, had to do this curriculum piece and that curriculum piece, they ended up with portfolios. They ended up with a less structured environment, but more driven by performance measurement. Uh, So the, the concept of control charts and averages and variation played in. Well, when I left uh, Juno, practice law for a little while. Uh, the Chugat School District, which had been the recipient uh, of a Baldridge Quality Award uh, before I got to Chugatchmute, uh, had been a beneficiary of Mr. Rochelot's experiences, uh, and they introduced the same concept for a very small rural education system. So uh, I studied uh, a lot of Dr. Deming, uh, and I saw the wisdom of what he had proposed when he wrote uh, Out of the Crisis. Problem, I guess, was we weren't in a crisis, and his message was not accepted except by those of us who were very nerdish. Uh, I spent a couple of years on the faculty of the University of Alaska Southeast. Uh, I had an introduction to business course. Well, I would introduce people to Deming, but uh, at that stage, there were not many students who could understand the strength of the concepts that he introduced. So that was my introduction. And uh, as I have gone through, I refer to Deming frequently, uh, as I do many of the uh, senseis of, of uh, lean, uh, just uh, the incredible wisdom that they've accumulated over time mm-hmm. is phenomenal. Yeah, you know, I was fortunate to have that exposure to Dr. Deming's work, um, being a college student bookworm I read out of the crisis because my dad had it on, um, on his bookshelf and somehow his picture peering off the front cover of the book, um, caught, caught my interest. But, you know, my dad had talked about, um, what he learned in a, in a Deming four day workshop. And, you know, at that point, um, I, I had enough workplace experience to sort of understand or at least have exposure to different types of leadership styles and different types of workplaces and trying to help create a better type of workplace. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's not the default of, of how business operates, but it's, it's um, a powerful uh, approach that Dr. Deming um, kind of laid out for us. So, you know, I'm curious back to your different roles as a CEO of an organization, you know, Dr. Deming would say things like, you know, quality, 
starts in the boardroom and, and talk about the role of senior leadership. Um, what, what, you know, now that you know, you're looking back at having been a CEO, how does Dr. Deming um, resonate with you now or after that time? Uh, even more deeply than before, I, I remember reading John Shook's uh, Learning to See and going through the maps that he used to uh, explain what seeing meant to him. Uh, back then, it was a struggle. Today, after uh, after the 16 years of experience that I've had, especially working in uh, healthcare, administrative processes, finance, you learn to visualize uh, how processes run. Uh, when when I I even talk strange now, I have to explain to my staff when I talk about the current state, uh, I'm talking about what it is that exists right now. Uh, and when I look at uh, the workplace today, it seems so simple. Lean seems so very, very simple. But I was so immersed in the blockers that most people had towards accepting new thoughts and ideas, the same problem that Dr. Deming ran into constantly, except in, in Japan. Uh, so it, it fits. Now, I work with boards that are not highly educated, that have very little experience. Uh, I don't have many business people. Uh, I have a lot of politicians. Um, it's the nature of a, of a community action agency board. So, uh, And I work with people, and the way I describe them is that they're heart people, not business people. Mm -hmm. When I came into Chugachmi, and I quickly realized that I didn't have the capacity uh, to be able to make much in the way of improvements or new new uh, service ideas. Uh, and as a result, uh, when I found Lean, what I discovered is through the elimination of waste, you can free up time with an employee to be able to do a little bit more in terms of developing new services. But then what I found is that there was a lack of uh, innovative thinking or creativity uh, when I looked at uh, Dr. Deming's um, Create Pride in Work, uh, it, it resonated this last time is that we have employees who are used to being told what to do when you actually create time so they can think about what they're doing uh, and they can find that joy in work again. Uh, it's a different work environment. So I, I approached Rural Cap very differently from the way I approached uh, everything else. Uh, the only difficulty I have is that uh, wh while he talked about uh, it starts at the boardroom, um, I actually have to teach the board uh, what it is that we do in order to create that extra value that allows us to work in an environment where every available minute is usually locked up by inefficiencies, uh, incompetencies, and um, grant requirements. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, it's similar to uh, healthcare in many respects, Mark. When you and I talked about uh, one of those organizations years ago, uh, <clears throat> that, that those were the exact same problems. Uh, doctors are wonderful, but they're not business people. <clears throat> and um, yeah, then you know, hopefully we figure out how to blend those different perspectives together into creating an organization that can accomplish what what it needs to accomplish and do so in a way that supports the people who are working there, like you said, between joy and work and everything else that people want to get out of um, their workplace. And I found a receptive environment uh, about, uh, about a year ago, we went through our performance evaluation process and my uh, chief people and culture officer uh, had heard what I was saying about uh, Deming and not really liking uh, the, the type of performance evaluations uh, I'm, I'm an advocate for getting rid of them, but uh, all of our government contracts require that we have performance evaluation. So we revamped it and revised it. Uh, it saved us about 400 hours of effort, according to the calculations of my chief people and culture officer. And we didn't have people who were upset. And we essentially asked uh, three questions. Uh, what do you think you did well? Where do you think you need to improve? And how can I help you? 
that format made the performance evaluation process incredibly valuable. Right now, for example, I have two members of my executive team, a very junior, not, not any of the executive officers, but very junior. And uh, we're branching out and looking at a couple of what can we do better. So I'm teaching them how you observe trends in public policy in order to prepare the organization with the skill sets it needs in order to uh, apply for some of the funding that comes out of that. That's long-term strategic thinking. I mean, I, I go back to the Indian Child Welfare Act, which I was introduced to in 1972, and I'm still working on it today. Funding opportunities are coming up if you can observe the lay of the policy uh, land structure and uh, prepare to uh, accept some of the responsibilities that come with a grant. So that performance evaluation system is wonderful. I have uh, two junior staff who are appreciating the teaching and the training. Uh, I let them uh, go off and do their learning and exploration, which is again something that I learned with Lean. When you don't have, when you have good standard work, uh, when you when you know that mistakes are common, then it's easy to let someone go out and propose a course of action. Uh, begin to uh, explore it, come up with mistakes or errors. They may come back for a little bit of coaching on how they address it and then send them out to make more mistakes and errors <laughs> just as long as they improve whatever it is that they're finding that constitutes a problem. So um, before we delve into you know, some of the, the lean concepts and methods that you're using at Rural Cap, can you tell the listeners a little bit about the organization and, um, you know, and the range of services that that are offered can just uh, kind of set some context for us. Uh, absolutely. We are what's referred to as a community action agency and funded through a program called the community service block grant program. It's not a lot of funding, especially for a state like Alaska. We only have a little uh, uh, under 750,000 people. So we're the only community action agency in all of Alaska. Uh, so what we do is, we are charged with listening to the voice of those who live in poverty and try to develop strategies that help them escape poverty. And so uh, the programs that we have, interestingly enough, are ubiquitous throughout the community action agencies, about 12, 1,300 of them in the United States. Uh, so we run a Head Start program. Mm -hmm. um, it's been around for almost as long as we have. And uh, we have 24 sites around the state of Alaska. Uh, weatherization has become a community action agency program. So uh, during ARA in 2008, uh, when we went through that recession, uh, there was a lot of money poured into weatherization. Uh, individuals who don't have a lot of money who live in poverty uh, can't really afford energy costs. And here in Alaska, energy costs are very high. We... Um, run a, a supportive housing program. In uh, 2000, when the city of Seattle put together the first housing first concept, meaning that homeless people who continue to drink and use drugs are not uh, stopped from being housed because of their continued use, uh, we started that first uh, project here in Anchorage about 2007-2008. And it's expanded. We have about 270 housing units, but we get uh, very uh, dysfunctionally uh, uh, operating people. They uh, have typically been homeless, uh, heavy alcoholic use, a lot of uh, mental issues, a lot of uh, uh, you know, some brain injuries, some uh, disabilities. And uh, we house them, we surround them with clinical services, with case management services. And then we do a lot of work um, in community development, uh, particularly with Alaska Native tribal communities. Uh, last uh, Friday, we just opened a domestic violence and sexual assault center in a little community called Hooper Bay, serving two of their uh, additional surrounding communities. So mm -hmm. It's a wide range of services. Uh, uh, my goal is to try and see how we can actually move the needle on uh, people who are in poverty. And so with my lean background, digging into root cause uh, analyses really benefits the uh, organization. So in a nutshell, uh, Mark, that's what we do at Rural Cap. Uh, 
yeah. a lot of uh, community programs trying to alleviate poverty among a population of about 150,000 people. Well, it's, it's obviously, you know, it's very, it's very important work. Um, how do you decide then with that range of services and needs and priorities, um, where to focus Kaizen activity or improvement events? Um, uh, tough question, but I worked on intuition when I arrived. Uh, the board had relieved two CEOs in the prior two and a half years. Uh, I was hired as an interim, and when I walked into, into uh, the office for the first time, uh, I did not have an executive team. Uh, they had all started bailing. Uh, other staff were looking for jobs. It was truly an organization in crisis, uh, and it was basically no no kaizen. Um, I I was walking into an organization that had no experience whatever in quality improvement or process improvement, other than what the government had done through GIPRA and the Results Oriented Management and Accountability Act, and most of that was um, band aids. And so I had to address a number of crises. I had to hire an executive team. So what I started off with, I found a, one of our facilities staff who uh, was amenable to converting one of our uh, old, um, we have an old building and this was, it used to be an old uh, uh, mop room. It had a shower in it. It had a uh, uh, sink that, um, had seen many, many years of use. And so I introduced through our contract with a janitorial service firm, a Kanban system. Mm-hmm. And so David went into the room, he cleaned it up, he pulled out the shower, he cleaned out the sink, put in shelving, and we analyzed the supplies that the janitorial service used I uh, came up with the idea as I walked through a whole bunch of uh, spaces going to the Gemba and, and found that we had toilet paper, we had paper towels, we had cleaning supplies. We probably had two or three years stuffed in different uh, nooks and crannies around the uh, the building, a 30,000 square foot building. So uh, we put together a Kanban system. We had the cards, we had a primary bin, a buffer bin, uh, and no contractor is going to say no. So they bought into it. Uh, I had staff that were not responding well at the time, particularly the uh, remaining uh, mid-level staff. Uh, So that's where I started. And then I began trying to address the problem of document management. So on my Gemba walks, I noticed that we had a huge number uh, of storage boxes. Uh, We had a huge number of file cabinets. Uh, The ARMA averages... uh, when you see something uh, like I saw are real instructive, you know that uh, this is a huge problem. Uh, It bore out. uh, I I started a document management uh, process. We created an A3. We wrote a problem statement. I had uh, one of my um, mid-level managers, I asked uh, if if they would uh, be the team lead on it. I was turned down. So I had to go down to program management, specifically our IT manager, and ask if they would do it. They don't typically say no. Uh, And we ended up with a small team. I had them go out and and measure. We looked at the number of uh, file cabinets that we had, um, looked at the number of drawers. Uh, Arma provides good data on what it takes in order to maintain that. So we knew that we had something like 93 or 94 uh, drawers that accumulated a lot of paper. Uh, it was about twenty to twenty-five thousand annually to maintain one of those. They take up a certain amount of space, <clears throat> and so I was paying something like ninety-three thousand a year for just the space that they occupied. So, um, long and the short of it is, is that those two items are what I use to introduce staff to the concepts of lean. Mm. Uh, but I also identified early adopters, and I identified. Uh, resistors. Uh, uh, And and so you and I had talked a little bit about the Rogers innovation curve. Uh, Most people will, who have read Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point, will understand uh, the concepts. 
There are about two and a half percent of the population that can be considered innovators, about 14, 13 and a half, 14 percent that can be considered early adopters. And your goal is to try to reach the point where you have that 16 percent of innovators and early adopters, and then you can begin to move into early majority. Mm -hmm. That's the level of thinking. Um, I had no clue that that even existed when I started at Chugachmute, but uh, at Rural Cap, I realized that I'm taking heart people who have really no business experience. Uh, they're complying with what they have to because that's the world of government grants. Uh, and we begin the journey towards uh, learning and understanding what lean principles were all about. But the change management portion of it was the huge part. Yeah, and I think we'll we'll come back later and talk about some of these barriers and, and what can be um, done to help get through to people, um, you, you, you talked about introducing staff to lean and you know, learning, helping people be conversant in the language of lean, the concepts, the methods is, is one thing, um, you know, trying to help gain acceptance is, you know, part of that leadership challenge. But um, I was wondering if you, you know, you could talk first about some of the training approach that you're using um, and, and in particular, how, training within industry is a part of that approach. Uh, absolutely. And uh, you are um, familiar with the work that was done at Alcoa uh, around safety mm -hmm. and how Paul O'Neill uh, focused. Uh, I think the story came out of chasing the rabbit uh, by Steven Spear, but uh, instead of going in and talking about uh, how he was going to save the company financially, he stood up and talked about safety. Yeah. That's similar to what I did. Um, you know, when, I, when I began speaking about uh, safety, uh, uh, I had a team of executives to hire, and I was able through the hiring process to acquaint uh, my executives with lean thinking. Uh, the chief people and culture officer was my first hire. Uh, what she told me is that uh, when she got her MBA, uh, she had an introduction to lean, but then she was told by the professor that uh, despite the introduction to lean, she only needs to know about it because she'll never use it. Uh, and then I had a chief financial officer who had left the organization during all of the turmoil. But when uh, she heard that I had made some uh, key decisions that would uh, um, impact the uh, turmoil, would reduce it, uh, chose to come back. And that left me with a chief operating officer for each. So for each of them, uh, they were all bought in. They, they, they didn't know what lean was, uh, except in the case of my chief people and culture officer. Uh, so what I came into was an environment where we had to emphasize the respect that we were coming in with, that we were not trying to threaten employees. Uh, I did have to let a couple of them go early on, but, um, you know, I subscribe to what Jim Collins was talking about in his Good to Great series. Uh, you have to get the right people on the bus. So I was allowed to do that. That was the first time I had the opportunity to hire my entire executive team uh, who were already conversant with my philosophy of management. So the respect part, we spent a great deal of time on uh, with my chief operating officer. Uh, I brought the whole team uh, out to Lean Frontiers uh, event at Jekyll Island, and they got to hear from others about the benefits of lean thinking. So the COO really embraced going to the Gemba, <clears throat> and instead of sitting in his office 80% um, of the time, he was out dealing with his uh, direct reports. I didn't let him into his duties uh, for about three months. I kept operations while he had an opportunity to understand the organization and the philosophy. Uh, but interestingly enough, after 16 years of uh, uh, being in a very intense business environment, uh, uh, he embraced lean concepts rapidly. <clears throat> he took his little thumb drive of COO type documents and retired it and then began going out to learn. So as we were doing this, uh, we had some improvements that were already moving where we didn't really have an opportunity to train because of crisis mode. Uh, but when we had 
a little bit of extra bandwidth, uh, we put together a lean champion training matrix <clears throat> with about 19 modules, and we adapted them to TWI and we experimented with it. So I went through, uh, and the first lesson after I did a lean 101 introduction um, uh, by videotape, um, I did it a couple of times and then we filmed it so any employee can go online and, and go through a lean 101. Uh, we put together, and I was doing it on the fly, <coughs> standard work for lean tools. Mm -hmm. uh, the first one was uh, problems. <coughs> and the first, uh, we would usually have eight, nine, or ten items of standard work. We wouldn't try to bury them <coughs> in concepts. And so when we put down problem statements, it was all about, you know, the first thing is, uh, what do you do with a problem? Well, you have to recognize it. Mm -hmm. it's surprisingly, how many people don't realize that when they face a problem, it's a problem. They think it's just a part of the workplace. Yeah. And they've been shown by uh, uh, Sally or George how to uh, deal with that problem by developing workarounds. So it becomes a part of the culture that, oh, yeah, you need to talk to George if you want to figure that one out. And so the first uh, descriptor was is that identify a problem. And people wonder, why do you have to explain to employees that they need to identify problems. Well, it's because they don't know what they are. Uh, the second thing, very simple, write it down. I don't care how you write it down, just write it down. Why? Because we have so many problems that we'll forget them. And, yeah. and so we went through and created standard work. When we did arrow diagrams, for example, or when we did a critical path method, uh, we created standard work. And then we would have no more than 10 employees sign up with a cohort of trainers. We put together a lean champion training matrix with the sequence that we thought would be beneficial where prior learning could benefit subsequent learning. Uh, and we sat down and went through TWI method. Uh, the one thing we didn't really do was uh, the uh, final uh, well, actually, we did the final go through. Uh, we took one step out, and that was the silent because you don't have anything physical in front of you unless you create the props. So we just started with the first one of um, of doing, uh, then explaining, explaining with key points, uh, and explaining with reasons for key points. And we went through uh, 10 times each. Uh, where we needed props, we had cards developed. And the first cohort uh, completed all of that. Uh, and then we um, did have a number of larger Kaizen that uh, allowed some of them to practice that skill set. So that's uh, basically all we did. Uh, the uh, Lean Champion Training Matrix assumed that no one had any lean skills. I now have three or four people who are up in the third quadrant they're capable mm. of teaching. Well, that's great. I mean, that's really um, <clears throat> creative and innovative approach. Um, using the, the training within industry method to, to teach other lean concepts. Cause you know, you, you talked earlier about the Kanban system for janitorial services. I think um, a lot of people, myself included would think about applying TWI to frontline work. Um, but yeah, well, it's really, it's got the wheels spinning. Um, it's really thought provoking um, to, to think through um, how to use, sort of that, that basic building block of lean, which I think a lot of people would consider TWI to be one of those building blocks of not just, you know, for example, throwing a standard work document in front of someone and assuming they can do it. Um, we, can, we can be better instructors and trainers and um, yeah, applying that to lean concepts. That's really, that's really interesting. So you're, you're continuing that. And I like how you framed it as an experiment, but that experiment continues and evolves. I'm sure you've learned a lot by doing it this way. Well, and as with any experiment, you make changes when you see the opportunity. So our second cohort made it fairly close. They had about four lessons on the 19 to finish. And we had recruited the third and fourth cohorts, finding that they were filling up pretty quickly. Uh, and uh, a couple of my early trainees were sufficiently advanced to be able to train, but one of them decided, well, gosh, so if we're doing project management, then why don't we make a uh, 
why don't we make lunch and figure out how we typically do it, and then uh, and then we can uh, modify to uh, incorporate some improvements in that whole process. I got that out of uh, a couple of different sources. Uh, Toyota worked in New York City with a uh, food services uh, organization. Mm -hmm. Some restaurants have done uh, uh, process improvement events where they've actually uh, consolidated, reduced steps, uh, did a whole bunch of value creation. So um, yeah, I encourage that kind of innovative thinking as long as uh, you're hearing the phrases frequently as you do in TWI and as long as you're repeating frequently, uh, it's not like you've been shown once and you're wondering what the heck did he show me? <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and then, you know, the thing I love about TWI is I, I've been able to explore in some episodes with people is the idea of, um, of closing the loop of, of testing for confirmation that the person you're training understands and is capable of, of actually following through with the work. I think of it as, um, you know, a Deming cycle, a PDSA cycle. It's not just plan and train, but then we, we study whether that training um, has really been effective and then adjust accordingly. Um, well, the PDSA cycle was uh, one of the 19 lessons uh, putting together an A3 uh, was one of those lessons. Mm -hmm. uh, in addition to uh, the, the regular tools of lean, uh, we, we took the foundational tools. So 5S was a, a part of the training. Uh, and yeah, it, it, what it means is that at the end of it, we had 10 people who were, was acquainted with the language of lean. And then we mm -hmm. had another 16 or so in the second cohort. Uh, but in the meantime, those individuals are working with their peers uh, to spread the knowledge. Uh, it got to spread so quickly that one of the, we, we own a subsidiary, a for-profit company that sells energy equipment in rural Alaska. Shocked the heck out of me, but when they came to our um, annual uh, end-of-year board meeting, uh, their CEO reported that we had, they had seven Kaizen uh, that had either been completed or were in process. Uh, they were also a part of our five-day close Kaizen for our financial accounting system. Uh, and, and so the spread has been even beyond our own little organization. So, um, you know, Patrick, we've talked about um, all of the training and education and involvement um, with different lean methods, but you're also doing a lot of work from a, a management system perspective. Um, if you could talk about the rural cap performance management system and how that's structured and what that's doing for you. Uh, great question, Mark. Absolutely. Um, at Chugachmu, Dr. Tom Jackson introduced me to performance management. And I think I was uh, too new to really understand the linkages uh, he introduced us to the X matrix and we tried to develop one while there, but we, we, we did not have the sophistication to be able to tie work that is being done in our virtual workplace that uh, we, we do a lot of administrative work. We do a lot of uh, interaction with uh, customers, uh, clients, tenants. And so looking at uh, the experience I've had over the last 16, I understood the X matrix in, in a very deep way. And so trying to incorporate our strategic thinking uh, and to try to build towards a, a Hoshan Conry cycle, um, we adopted, when I first got here and had an executive team, two initial breakthrough initiatives, one of them being organizational fitness. Organizational fitness was a requirement, uh, but basically that's the implementation of lean and the two pillars, respect for people and uh, constant improvement. <clears throat> so things like our many into one uh, A3, uh, we have a compliance requirement and we also have federal regulations that we adhere to. We have state grant uh, requirements, uh, uh, federal FARS requirements. So there's just all kinds of compliance that we have to do. And so we put together an A3 uh, and we call it many into one. What we want to do is instead of having to individually monitor and comply everything, we want to set such a high standard uh, of uh, compliance uh, 
in, in Deming words, uh, inspection at the source as opposed mm-hmm. to inspection after the fact. Right. And so we're building uh, standard work in every area where we have compliance requirements. So we'll go from step one to step two to step three. We are looking at the handoffs. We're looking at cycle time. Uh, we want to understand what the tact is for our compliance obligations. And so <clears throat> as we did that, we realized that, okay, uh, performance management uh, at the virtual floor essentially is using a process control board. So if we understand what tact is, we understand what cycle time is. We explain to employees that if we have, example, on Thursdays, we we might have 30 different checks that have to be written for accounts payable. If we understand the amount of time it takes for each of those to go through the process, and we have cycle time. We know some of them are going to be uh, in the upper control limit area, some in the lower control limit area. They'll have uh, variation. And so when we go to uh, Don Wheeler's concept of uh, dealing with variation, it's my job to explain to staff that, no, we don't have 10 minutes to accomplish. We have 10 minutes plus or minus three, plus or minus four, plus or minus six, whatever the variation is. So as we build that from the virtual floor, uh, it goes up to an A3 uh, or through standard work, and then it goes up to the executives who are each managing projects, and then they ultimately come up into my X matrix where we have uh, performance targets, uh, where we have teams defined, uh, where we have project management plans in place where we're monitoring according to uh, the amount of time we feel it should take. Uh, We're still working with it. Uh, Karen Martin has a a brilliant process for uh, determining prioritization. And so we're not interested in tackling project after project. We want to understand, as Karen talks about, what's the cycle time for a small project? What's the cycle time for a medium and a large one? We developed our Kanban boards um, with story cards to be able to look at what we have as backlog, what we have as in the prioritization or to-do column. It's actually successful in our uh, grant management, our, our communications and development team, uh, they did an initial Kaizen. Uh, you know, I, I didn't have any real experience with Kanban boards. I've not had a crew that was really accepting of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but during the Kaizen, I threw out a couple of proposals. I said, well, let's see if we can develop a Kanban board. Since we had a process of writing grants, there was a, a very specific uh, process in place. They had a, a list of all of the interactions that had to happen, everything that had to be prepared, the handoffs. So we did a critical path uh, method analysis. We looked at uh, handoffs. We looked at uh, the standard work that had to happen. uh, And we realized that this was a great way to monitor. If someone was thinking of a grant, they could put it into backlog. Uh, And when we looked at priorities, we had existing programs. We could very easily prioritize in the to-do column Uh, And because they understood how long it took them to do an average grant, uh, we could create space. Uh, They used the uh, agile uh, processes of taking a a calendar and blocking out one or two or four eight-hour blocks uh, and specifically dedicating to them. And then we're in the process of figuring out, okay, so Mark Graben committed that he would have the budget available uh, as a part of a pull system. At this particular point, well, that handoff could, that budget could be done before the handoff was required, according to the CPM method. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know this is getting complicated for more people, but this is why I think it's so simple. Uh, after 16 years in this world, um, that's the way I think. Mm-hmm. And so the management system is trying to teach everyone how to do that. I can pretty easily figure out where we're at in my mind, but I want everyone else and the board to see once we've trained the board that, okay, here's everything that we're doing. Here is the progress that we're making. Uh, And then as you know, from your performance management world uh, and the book that you wrote is that you have to figure out how to align the board, the executive team and staff with the concepts that show that you're making progress. So um, it's uh, really a lot simpler than it it sounds and looks. It's just a matter of we have to teach people what it's all about. Yeah. 
And you, you talk about aligning people. And, and one other thing I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, um, as a CEO, how do you get others aligned around what respect for people really translates to on a ongoing basis? Um, what, what, what does that mean to you and Rural Cap? And, and how do you help um, get others aligned with that? We have a lot of discussion about respect. The first step is modeling it. Mm -hmm. And I am incredibly accessible. What I found, and I think I told you the story when we were talking about Chugachmute, is that I was sitting in my office for the better part of a week at Chugachmute after about four or five years of implementation of Lean and wondering why no one had come to me to ask to fix something or to put out a fire. I achieved that very quickly here for a couple of reasons. One is that when I hired my three executives, they were responsible. I really don't care if they make a mistake. I only want them to write the problem down and to solve it. And they're all really good at that. Mm -hmm. So I really have a lot of time uh, to uh, dedicate to other things, uh, going to the Gemba and asking people about their work. Uh, I had one employee who was leaving when I first got here and I stopped her in the hallway and I asked, is there anything I can do to convince you to stay? And she happened to be the last person left in the grant writing department. And mm -hmm. we were a month away from grant writing. Uh, she agreed to stay. I made her the acting director of the department. We now have uh, a total of four people there plus uh, a Vista volunteer. Uh, but asking people about how they're doing, understanding their families, remembering birthdays, the celebrations, you know, being a human being. Yeah. Then, as we began to think about going to the Gemba, uh, we had to revise our command and control uh, tendencies. This was a very siloed command and control organization. So we began to talk about breaking down the silos. Uh, we began to start eliminating some of the command and control meetings. Uh, about uh, halfway through my tenure here, I eliminated a number of those and we started having conversations. I would have to say constantly, I am not telling you or asking you to do anything. I am inviting you to a conversation uh, and I would really love to hear your perspective. Yeah. So one of the uh, Lean Frontiers events that I went to had a uh, whole day that I, I paid for to learn about humble inquiry. Mm -hmm. uh, I was already familiar with motivational interviewing from my healthcare days. And when, I in, when I introduced that to my chief operating officer, he embraced it so emphatically, it scared me. Uh, he went and bought a number of copies of humble inquiry and he began practicing it as I had been practicing it since that training uh, and we have others, too. We're, we're not telling people what to do. We're asking them about what do you see in the problem. We're just trying to guide them towards an understanding of what it is that they could assume as power in the value streams they worked in if they understood how to map one and how to put together a problem statement and, and how to try to solve that problem using the PDSA, PDCA cycles. Right. And so... Uh, with humble inquiry, with a constant uh, respect for people, uh, with our safety committee, we immediately began working on safety. We have cut down a huge volume uh, of workers' comp claims down to this last reporting period in the meeting I was at just before I joined yours. Uh, we had none. We are way down in terms of our workers' comp claims. Uh, we had uh, an OSHA um, violation notice or inspection notice are going to come look us over, but they offered the state of Alaska to come in and give us a voluntary compliance tour. We did that. Um, we have uh, regular fire drills. Uh, we're organized. Uh, it's real cute to see, uh, Mark, but our team leads from different parts of the building uh, have their hard hats. They have their uh, uh, flashlights that they're walking around with. They have whistles to be able to organize. They are there to make sure that we vacate the building in a, a short period of time. So mm -hmm. uh, our 30,000 square foot uh, building uh, from uh, alarm sound to um, 
assembly is about three and a half minutes. We get everyone out very quickly and we do it regularly. It really paid off when we had the earthquake uh, back in November of 2018. Mm -hmm. Uh, But by demonstrating to people that you really care, and I'm genuine about it. uh, uh, I ask people how they're doing. I ask, uh, we have a baby that uh, is born. I just had one of those emails today. So uh, Janelle, how's little Caden doing? And Mm -hmm. well, she responds, they just took him on his first uh, camping trip and he did just wonderful and they show Mm -hmm. pictures. So we, we have to be a human workplace. I work with heart people and that's what they expect out of us. Yeah. So we model it. We talk about it constantly. Uh, when we have our uh, leadership team meetings, when we have our stand-ups, it's always, we always say that, you know, we need, we need to be respectful. Uh, and we extend it to our customers, to our clients, to our tenants as well. We need to be respectful of their circumstances. And I think humble inquiry helps a lot because it lets us look into who you are. We're not afraid of asking those questions of who you are. You're free to answer or not, and you choose not to answer. We don't get offended at it. But if it's genuine, people will open up to you. Well, and when you talk about this this uh, this need to be human and to treat people well, um, what, what I blogged about this might have been serendipity because I know baseball is really important to you. And um, what I blogged about today, I don't know, did you see the article in the Wall Street Journal about the Kansas City Royals? recently? Um, I did not. No. Here's the headline. Um, I'll send you the article. Um, Baseball's newest market inefficiency, treating people like people. (laughs) And like, wow. All right. Great. Um, In a nutshell, um, the Royals and the Minnesota Twins are thought to be the only two of the 30 Major League Baseball teams who have not released any low-level minor league baseball players in the name of cost-cutting during the pandemic. And so, you know, there, 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 there's a quote here, um, how the Royals uh, as an organization are positioning themselves in their recruitment of um, prospects and baseball players. As I think this is the wall street journal articles um, phrase, not treating your lowest paid employees like garbage. So good for them, but it's strange that that seems so unusual or so, so noteworthy to treat people like people. What an amazing concept. Uh, But yes, I I, uh, had two sons that played baseball. I did not like it growing up, uh, predominantly because it was such a uh, competitive from an early age sport. Mm -hmm. If you're in, uh, in little league, it shouldn't be competitive. It should be all about having fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I, feel the workplace needs to be uh, similar. Uh, I have people who hired on because they want to work. So let's accept that they want to work. Uh, Let's accept that there are fun parts of work, but there are parts that are not so much fun. And let's make standard work, uh, solve problems, and make the non-fun parts more fun. And then let's begin to think about how we can solve the problems that we face every day. Mm -hmm. That's the creative and innovative part. And by inviting people to that conversation, I found that our education system is so bad at teaching innovation and creativity is that we have to spend a significant amount of time inviting people to conversations, teaching them how to research, how to find good, valid information, make connections, and then not worry about being perfect in implementing something, but implementing something. So my latest... uh, I I release information to staff when I feel they're ready. That's one of the benefits of having 16 years in a CEO saddle is that when I begin to see that they're needing to know what the next step is to solve their, their thoughts and concerns, I'll release it. So when I started uh, inviting people to a creative conversation, I would be met with absolute silence. Uh, I would make light of that. I said, you know, I feel like I'm in uh, school teaching and I'm asking someone a question and and they don't want to uh, raise their hands to try to volunteer an answer because they're afraid that they'll be ridiculed. I said, there's no ridicule here. Uh, I oftentimes don't know the answer to questions that I ask and I'm really seeking out uh, your Mm -hmm. thoughts on it. And so I introduced uh, Anne Mae Chang's thinking 
um, she wrote Lean Impact uh, mm-hmm. for uh, social uh, impact. And, uh, you know, I like her three concepts, uh, setting big audacious goals, mm-hmm. um, having quick um, uh, experiments. Let's, let's not worry about uh, having everything put in place before we try an experiment. Uh, and let's uh, accept failure because mm-hmm. uh, failure is a common part of, of every organization. And, and so having fun, uh, being creative and innovative, uh, realizing that uh, innovation and creation uh, have as their stepchildren the multitudes of failures that occur before you find something that works. So mm-hmm. let me just share one with you. Um, I'm, yeah. I, I encourage my staff to submit an application for a Chan Zuckerberg grant, a five-year, $1 million grant per year. Uh, they were reluctant to. We don't have any ideas. So I said, mm-hmm. okay. Uh, here's something that one of my colleagues introduced to me. We're in Alaska. We don't get fresh vegetables uh, or the fruits that can be grown hydroponically. So let's put an application talking about sustainable development for villages and, and hydroponics. We actually scored an 85 uh, on the grant. It wasn't high enough to actually get the grant. But a couple of my staff people in our community development Head Start programs were so inspired by the thought that without telling me, which they don't have to do, I hear we get a grant from the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program to put in four hydroponic walls in four of our head starts in rural Alaska. Mm -hmm. And it was combined with a pedagogy of teaching children about the biology of plants and how they grow and to show them that not all vegetables are brown and wilted (laughs) and of extremely (laughs) poor quality. That's the innovation and, and creativity uh, that we can exercise. Uh, with the COVID pandemic, uh, what we found is that uh, we have the resources now because we didn't spend a lot of that grant to put an additional three into some of our head starts. And so we're going to have seven of our sites uh, learning about vegetables and seeing that there's a different side of life. Mm. So we're starting to get uh, invitations into the creative and innovative conversation. And it all comes from just showing respect that I'm not going to beat you up for an idea uh, because the normal course of human conduct is, is that if you fail at something, they're going to tease you. They're going to pick on you. They're going to say, Oh, you're stupid. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't tell you how many times that I would make a speaking uh, error and someone would say, Oh, and you went to Princeton. It was derogatory Uh, and we all make mistakes so if we accept that and build it into the culture uh, we we are rocketing faster than I have seen any organization rocket um, uh, in the nonprofit world in in the health world so uh, that's a part of uh, the excitement of the job that I have these days is is to be able to invite people to these conversations and maybe one other thing um, we can touch on before wrapping up, you know, I think it's really interesting how you draw on, um, you know, the lessons and inspirations from different fields, from, you know, plastics manufacturing to um, di- different authors and, and different domains and, and pulling that together. Um, one, one book we, we both really like is um, General Stanley McChrystal's team of teams. And, you know, you mentioned earlier moving away from a command and control culture. Certainly, if you, you know, if you could share what, what that book means to you and, and what some of the concepts are that you're applying. Uh, General McChrystal is just downright brilliant. And it only took him something, if I recall correctly, in the neighborhood of 10 years to move from command and control to team of teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the leaps of faith that he had to make in the face of an organization uh, in which you have uh, leadership roles for two years and then you're moved out, uh, where you have uh, standards that are being taught to you from historical battles that go back a couple of millennia. And, and the standard work, the uh, things that they do to bring you into the military culture are hard to fight. So when I'm reading Team of Teams, 
And I'm hearing about uh, McChrystal being woken up uh, at night and being given a battle scenario that he has to approve. And he would ask the soldier, what do you think? The soldier would tell him, and that's what he usually did. It just told me, and that's consistent with my experience. If you ask me what's going on on the virtual floor here at uh, Rural Cap, it's not my area of expertise. Um, I need you to embrace that, uh, but I need you to feel safe in embracing that. But I also need you to have a peer support group that you can talk with it about as you go through the mistake phase, as you go through the standard work and training phase. So we realized we couldn't just let go into a team of teams approach because uh, as I had two um, uh, retired uh, army officers um, uh, on staff, they taught me the phrase commander's intent. Mm-hmm. things just happen when you let you know let them know what your intent was so my intent is to try to show them that i want the lean uh, protocols of respect for people and continuous improvement uh, built in so we moved um gradually to break down our siloed approach we had four division directors we had four divisions they rarely communicated they often had uh, similar duties and functions for staff that Uh, would uh, require the same standard work, but they were doing it separately. So we began by breaking down the silos, uh, by beginning to um, remove the element of command and control, uh, either by retraining or or there were a couple of employees at at the senior level who were let go, and gradually moving towards uh, collaboration and cooperation, which is what teams are all about, utilizing what they know. Mm -hmm. And so we go back to uh, right now, we're in a command and control of teams because we are trying to teach and train uh, what this cooperation and collaboration is. And the ultimate goal uh, is a very distributed um, allocation of duties and responsibilities. So if you know how to identify a problem uh, and and you can apply the Nike principle of just do it in terms of improvement, then Nike it. Nike the heck out of every problem you find that you feel comfortable. Uh, If you don't, then go ahead and reach up to your supervisor. If it requires more resources or it's bigger and broader, work up to the uh, executive leadership. If you think it needs me, I'm here. Come talk to me. And so... That's where we're at right now. We're we're still probably navigating our way through the teaming approach. Uh, we're acquainting our board with it because every board report, um, every uh, division report, um, we will talk about the team lead, which of course is uh, part of every A3. You have a team lead who is just there as kind of a uh, <clears throat> peer. Uh, but responsible for making sure that everything is coordinated. So that's where we're at. It's just a brilliant uh, concept. Uh, I became acquainted with Margaret Wheatley's work um, on management mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and basically how um, the world is chaotic and that chaos uh, ends up finding uh, an outlet when you let all the parts work. Mm-hmm. And so, we figure with training, with good strategic direction, uh, with permissions being granted according to a structured process, and then having an outlet for creative and innovative thinking, that team of teams will actually work. And in that, at that point, we um, intend to use the performance management information system to monitor where we're going. <clears throat> this does require that You identify problems quickly, and we have systemic problems that very few of us are trained yet to recognize. We hope to have a lot more of that. But when that comes up, um, we need to identify the problem, put together a problem statement, uh, analyze the current state, uh, look at a future state. All of that language, when it's common, will facilitate uh, a true team of teams approach. And I've not heard of anything similar being done within the nonprofit or hospital world, but you're more conversant with the hospital world than I am. Um, there, I, I wish we had more organizations like that in um, the healthcare realm. There, there are many who are trying to work on that culture change, but 
um, it's challenging and um, having good leadership at the top certainly is uh, is a big help. So Patrick, I want to thank you for sharing what you are, are working on and, and what you're doing as um, the CEO there at Rural Cap. I, I, I think kind of as, sort of as, as Paul O'Neill and Brian Jones and others inspired you, what you share you know, will inspire others in the nonprofit and healthcare realms and, and beyond. So thank you. Thank you so much for that, Patrick. Absolutely. And when you have time for an additional podcast, uh, we have an initiative we refer to as Breakthrough Initiative for Whole Community Healing, all based on my learnings from Lean and the creation of a restoration to health hypothesis that we're implementing here. I have time anytime you want to do that. So, All right. Our, it's delightful, Mark. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.